The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to episode number 47 of Talking Mopars and another installment of High Performance Heritage. As promised, we are talking about the history of the Max Wedge Big Blocks and the introduction to the legendary 440. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopar's High Performance Heritage. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Welcome back, my friends. I told you last week that we're going to be talking about the history of the Max Wedge Mopars and the 440, and we are, but not before I tell you about a few of my friends. If you haven't heard by now, my friends over at Hemipages.com have put together something really cool for the Mopar community. What they have done is organized a community build. The idea is awesome, and the idea is to basically create a build that is directed by us, the Mopar community. My buddies Chuck and Matt McMurray over at Hemipages are doing an amazing job with this project, and I'll try to sum it up as best as I can. We get to vote on the car. We get to vote on the color. We get to vote on the power adder and more. Our votes will determine how this project is built every step of the way, and when it's completed, it will compete at the Modern Street Hemi Shootout in 2021. Another cool aspect about this build is that the whole process is going to be documented for all of us to follow along, so I want you to do just that. Go cast your votes for the different aspects of this build, and let's see what we can collectively come up with. I guarantee that no matter what car is built, it is going to be awesome, and the project has already begun. That means that some of the votes have already been tallied up. In each round of voting, we are given several choices that we can choose from, and so far, here's what we've got. The car is going to be a 68 Dodge Dart Superstock Tribute car with a modern Hemi that's painted burgundy and will have a 2.9 liter Whipple supercharger to help it get down and dirty at the track. Sounds like we're off to a good start to me, so head on over to Hemipages.com and look for the Build Mopar project for more information and cast your votes in the next round and the rounds after. It's not too late to join in on the fun, folks, okay? Speaking of modern Hemis... Have you ever thought about swapping in a third-generation Hemi into your old Mopar? I know that I have, and that's exactly what I'm planning on doing myself. I have a little 76 D100 pickup truck that I plan on Hemi swapping because I also have a $100 5.7-liter Hemi that I managed to buy, and I'm currently trying to figure out how I want to go about building that engine, maybe a stock rebuild, Maybe we're going to have a little fun with it. I'm not quite sure, but even my Dart will eventually be Hemi-powered as soon as I'm done having fun with the 451 Stroker that's getting built for it. But when I first started kicking around the idea of a modern Hemi-swap, I didn't even know where to turn. And that's when I discovered DIYHemi.com. DIY Hemi was founded by my friend Blake Anderman. 
Blake set out to create a resource for anyone and everyone interested in swapping in a Gen 3 Hemi into their car or truck, and he's done an amazing job at accomplishing that task. I know that when it comes to working on cars, as easy as it is for some people, wiring is always my biggest hang-up. I'm, I'm stupid when it comes to wiring, folks, okay? That's where DIY Hemi came in handy for me, personally. DIY Hemi is, you know, in my opinion, the number one source for information on wiring and the electrical aspect of swapping in one of these modern Hemis into whatever car you have. They have videos, they have parts, manuals, and most importantly, I can't stress this enough, they have the knowledge to help you along with your Hemi swap. Maybe you don't want to give up on your big block Mopar just yet, but maybe you're curious about swapping in a modern Hemi. That's cool too. Just head on over to DIYHemi.com to learn more. Maybe you're not to the point in your project yet where you're going to be worried about the engine. You know, maybe you just finally came across the deal of a lifetime that landed you your dream Mopar project, but like many old Mopars, it needs some metal work. May I suggest my friends over at Auto Metal Direct. AMD can most certainly help you out with all of your Mopar metal woes, and I've spoken to many folks in the business of saving and restoring these old Mopars, and all of the best Mopar hunters that I know use AMD for their metal needs, and that says something. Now you don't have to find an expensive donor for that second generation charger you're working on. Chances are that whatever metal you need for your project, Auto Metal Direct has got you covered. And you can expect quality fitment because AMD actually test fits their prototype panels as many times as they need to to ensure that you get the best quality for your project. And they aren't just a supplier of sheet metal, folks. They have all sorts of other fun goodies for your Mopar project, so be sure to visit AutoMetalDirect.com. Before we go any further here, folks, I want to make sure that you understand that Hemi Pages, DIY Hemi, and AMD are not official sponsors of Talking Mopars, but they are friends of the show, and they've shown me a ton of support along this journey, and this is my way of saying thank you to them. I want to clarify that I would never endorse products or people that I don't personally believe in, and all three have my admiration, support, and respect. So if you're a Mopar enthusiast, you should definitely go and check them out. All right, folks, now that I've told you about my friends, it's time to get this show on the road. This week's Project Car of the Week is a tin grill, a 1977 Dodge Warlock to be exact. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the term tin grill, that is the nickname given to Mopar trucks made from 1972 through 1980 by my friend Paul from the Tin Grill Dodge Trucks page on Facebook. He also runs the Dropped Tin Grills page that showcases lowered tin grills. Both are great sources of information and places to share the love of these trucks. And as many of you know, I'm a huge fan of tin grills, and I try to promote them every chance that I get as great Mopar projects. And while the aftermarket isn't quite as strong with these trucks as it is for many others, I do think that will change in time, but only if we, you know, raise our voices loud enough and create such a ruckus that companies out there will start supplying us with more parts for these Mopars. So it's important that if you're out there and you have a tin grill, reach out to all the companies that you want parts from and just tell them, hey, there's a huge demand for people out there. And then let us know in those groups that you've done that. And then we can follow suit because maybe we want those same parts too. The more that these companies hear from us, 
10 grill Dodge truck owners. The more inclined and the more likely they are to take a look at this segment of the classic trucks industry and go, hey, you know, there's a market here. So we need to do our part too. I try to do it and let's get on with the Project Car of the Week. The truck featured on this edition of Project Car of the Week was posted Friday, August 28th at 3 p.m. Here is the ad. Dodge Warlock 1977, $4,500, Bronx, New York. Dodge 1977, in good condition. Color, satin black. I'm selling because I'm moving. Title status is clean. This is a V8 truck with an automatic. All right, people, this ad was super vague, but we're going to try to dissect it a little bit and try to squeeze it for some information, all right? These Warlocks are awesome trucks. Some people don't even like the Utilines. Um, uh, Utiline, for those of you that don't know, is the Mopar terminology for a step side. So, like I was saying, some people don't even like Utilines, and all Warlocks are Utilines, much like the Little Red Express. And for those unfamiliar, Warlocks were actually limited production special editions of these trucks that were introduced in 1976. And they entered regular production in 1977 and lasted until 1979. I'll probably do an episode of High Performance Heritage on these Warlock trucks because they're so cool. And I've already done an episode on the Little Red Express. So stay tuned for the High Performance Heritage episode coming on the Warlocks someday soon. I'm not sure when. But the Warlock package was released as basically a contribution to the adult toys lineup that Dodge was promoting. And I know... <laughs> Some of you are out there like, what in the world is he talking about? Adult toys. <laughs> really quick, in the late 70s, Dodge started marketing their pickup trucks and vans to people who basically like to get out and have some good old-fashioned fun. And that fun is had with accessorized vehicles. You know, so you got your street vans, your macho trucks, your power wagons um, that had the, gra the crazy graphic packages on them. I'll have to do a whole episode on the adult toy line too, since there's a lot to unpack there and tons to talk about. But anyways, this truck here is pretty cool, but it does need quite a bit of work. Not too much. It's not crazy, but it does need work. And it has what some consider to be the best grill out of all the years of tin grills. And I would have to agree. I love the 77 and 78 grills, but I tend to lean more towards the 77. I like the clear turn signals in the grill. They're just absolutely awesome. And unfortunately for tin grill guys, you'll all know this and gals. There's a lot of tin grill girls out there, which is awesome. But, you know, it's really hard to find tin grills in good condition. And I'm not just talking about the trucks in general. I'm actually talking about the grills. These things are usually found dented. And if you find a clean NOS grill, you know, you might find it on eBay, but I've never seen one cheaper than 700 bucks. And I've seen them as high as like 1500 bucks, maybe even more. So it's insane. Um, they're getting hard to find in good condition for a reasonable price. And that can be a little troublesome, but you know, maybe you get good with some bodywork tools and you can work out that metal. But again, it sure would be nice to have some more aftermarket support for these trucks. You know, reproduction grills would be nice when it comes to these grills, you know, the ones that are all banged up and beat up and, you know, need to be re-anodized. I think they just need a little love. I think we can hammer them back into place. If you go online and you look up people that restore, you know, these trim pieces and grills, it's really amazing what they can do with, you know, sandbag and a couple bodywork tools. So, you know, don't underestimate yourself. Go online, take a look at some of that stuff. What are you going to do? Hurt the grill? 
more than it's already hurt, you can beat the grill a little bit. I've got a couple spares that I have to practice with, so I'll keep you guys posted on that. I'll probably ruin at least one of them, but that's all right. It's already ruined. But, you know, just because these cars don't have the greatest aftermarket support doesn't mean they don't make awesome projects. Okay, I just want to make that clear. But this truck has either been painted satin black or the paint is faded so bad that it's dulled completely over time. Either way, it could definitely use some help, as could the bumpers. The bumper in the back is, I think, wood, and the front one has seen better days, that's for sure. But that all said, to some people, you know, paint and body is of no concern, and some crazy folks, myself included, don't mind a ratty Mopar. This truck proudly wears all its dents and scratches as badges of honor, much like all the other ratty Mopars that we've seen. And those dents and scratches and, you know, bumps and bruises would go great along with a set of some old school Kregers or slotted mags to replace the rollers that it's currently wearing. I love these trucks when they're, you know, squatted low and they've got, you know, the 15 by 10s in the back. I think they look mean. I like these trucks a little raked. Mine is on air ride, which, you know, I go back and forth on. I think air ride's cool and I do love my truck, but sometimes I wish that I would have been able to make that decision because I bought it on bags just because I liked the look of the truck. But, you know, sometimes when I think about it, I kind of like the idea of just a lowered truck that I don't have to mess with the air ride in. But, you know, what can you do? I'm not mad at it, but if it was my truck and it was stock when I got it, I probably would have went a different direction, but that's okay. I'm probably going to stick with air ride on it. I just need to redo the whole system. But anyway, back to this truck. The interior could use some help. And it does have some of my favorite Mopar seats of all time, the Buddy Bucket seats. Unfortunately, the centerpiece is missing, which, you know, sucks, but it's okay. We'll make do without it. The bucket seats themselves are actually in really good shape. And most of the time when you see these seats, they're completely trashed. But these look pretty solid, so that's really cool. Um, the truck could use some new carpet, and hopefully the floors underneath are solid. But considering this is an East Coast truck... I would not be too optimistic about the underside of this truck, but, you know, let's assume that it's okay. It also has the tough steering wheel in it, which is really another cool feature of some of these tin grill trucks. I love the tough wheels. I think they're awesome. They may not be as cool as a rim blow or, you know, other wheels, but tough steering wheels in these trucks, they, they seem right at home to me. But overall, with a clean title, the price of $4,500, that isn't too crazy, but of course, like any Mopar hunter, you'll always try to get a better deal. The one thing that we have on our side as potential buyers when it comes to this truck is that the seller indicates in the ad that they are selling because they're moving. This is good. This tells us that the truck isn't going with the current owner in the move, and that could actually lead to an opportunity to make a lower offer than the asking price. The seller may not be desperate to sell, but these are situations that I love to find buyers in because that's when they are motivated to sell. That tends to be a good thing for us, the potential buyer, and is basically like holding up a sign that says, make any offer and we'll go from there. So, hey, you know, they're motivated to sell and you're motivated to buy, make an offer and see what happens. All in all, I think this truck would make an excellent project. And I hope that somebody out there listening to this show or someone that saw this truck shared on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page goes and makes an offer and hopefully gets themselves a uh, you know, cool running and driving tin grill project. 
If it were me, I'd address the floors if they needed to be addressed. I'd treat the other rusty areas as best as I could. I'd get a carpet kit, some new wheels and tires, new bumpers, slam it, uh, a few fresh coats of semi-gloss black, and I'd hit the road while I wait to find a Gen 3 Hemi to swap in it. But that's just what I would do. That's Project Car of the Week, folks. The 1977 Dodge Warlock truck. I hope that me talking about tin grills on this podcast is really opening your mind to maybe potentially getting a tin grill as a project. They are awesome trucks. I can't say that enough. But that's Project Car of the Week. No Mopar left behind. This week's high-performance part belongs to a Mopar that I saw recently in a movie called Upgrade. The movie is set in the not-so-distant future, okay? And it's about a guy that hates technology who ends up paralyzed after him and his wife are attacked after their self-driving car loses control. Go figure, the guy hates technology. And this technologically advanced car that can drive itself crashes and gets him paralyzed and his wife killed. But his wife ends up getting killed in this attack, and he is offered a possible cure for his paralyzation by a young, rich inventor. The cure is an artificial intelligence computer chip that can actually help him regain the use of his limbs. Look, folks, I don't want to spoil the movie for you, so we'll keep it at that. But I do want to say that since this guy is a technophobe, he fears technology, he hates it, and, you know, he likes to keep things old school One of the things he likes to keep old school is his cars, and one of his cars is an old Mopar, a red 1971 Challenger RT to be exact. Unfortunately, we don't get to see too much of the car, but it is a Mopar, and it's definitely worth mentioning, and I wasn't even expecting it. I just saw this movie, and I was like, I'll check this thing out. It's free. So I was watching it, and I saw the Challenger, and I was like, oh, cool. I guess this was all worth it. So that's this week's high-performance part, the 1971 Challenger RT from the 2018 movie Upgrade. This week's listener story comes to us from Justin Garrett, who is all the way up in the Great White North. Here is Justin's story. Hey Chris, this is Justin Garrett from Black Falls, Alberta, Canada. I am currently in the Yukon just off the Alaskan border gold mining so I can feed my Mopar addiction. I really enjoy your podcast. I discovered it about two weeks ago and I'm caught right up waiting for your next episode. Anyway, I wanted to share with you a little bit about how I got into Mopars. Growing up, my dad would talk about his 68 383 Black Charger. Burning tires and running from the cops were most of his stories. I was hooked already, but to ensure that I had the Mopar bug, my dad buying me a 1971 Dart 318 car, my sister a 1973 Duster 318 car, and my brother a 1972 Duster 340 numbers matching car definitely ensured that I would be. My dad called them our high school cars. It's been 17 years and we still have them. I want to share one more Mopar story as I have so many. I did some work for a friend about two months ago and he was starting a new business venture. When it came time to pay me, he asked if I wanted money or he would give me a 2002 Dodge Cummins Sport and his 1969 383 F8 Triple Green AC Power Windows Special Edition Dodge Charger. Me being a 31-year-old single guy had no problem taking them off his hands. After all, it was my dream car. I have now had the car over a year and it's ready for the paint shop. I've made many memories with my dad building this car. I can't wait for it to be done and to be able to cruise with my dad in it. I added some pictures of the cars and truck. 
Thanks again for your hard work and great podcast, eh? Hey, Justin, thanks for sending in your story, man. I can definitely relate to how you got into Mopars. Aside from being around a few of them in my youth, I too remember my dad telling me stories about the golden era of muscle cars, and that's what got me hooked. I wished that I, you know, every time he told me those stories, I just, I, I wished and dreamed that I could have been alive to see it in person myself. But, you know, I never got to experience that kind of stuff. So I had to, you know, experience it through my dad's stories and through other people's stories. And I experience it today when I look through vintage car magazines and I read about the events and the cars of the time. It's just really cool. And it's something that I really enjoy doing. But I think it's great that your dad ensured that you and your siblings were all Mopar kids. And I think it's awesome that you still have those cars. As far as the story about your friend compensating you for work by giving you a Dodge Charger and a diesel truck, that sounds like a good friend to have, and what a cool story. I know someone who actually got paid for some work with um, a 1970 FC7 Charger RT, and to this day, I'm still envious. You know what I mean? No one ever offers to pay me in Mopars for anything, but I'm not the type of guy to say no to that. So if anyone out there in Mopar land has some work that needs to be done, email me. Maybe I'll just stand outside the local home improvement store with a sign that says, we'll work for Mopars and just see what happens. But thanks again, Justin, for sending in your story. It's always fun to hear them. And anyone out there is listening that wants to hear their stories shared on the show, send me your stories by emailing them to me, chris at talkingmopars.com, or you can call 209-28-MOPAR and leave me a voice message that I can play on the show. Remember, folks, the voicemail is limited to three minutes. So if you go over that, that's absolutely okay. Leave as many messages as it takes to tell your story, and I'll find a way to cut it all together for the show. But that was Listener Stories. The early 60s was when Chrysler decided to start getting serious about drag racing, even with their ever-popular Hemi no longer offered in their cars. The Hemi was dropped from Dodge and DeSoto vehicles in 1958, and Plymouth followed suit in 1959 to make room for two new big-block engines for Mopars with wedge-shaped combustion chambers instead of the hemispherical combustion chambers found in the appropriately named Hemis. 1959 would mark the introduction of the first RB big block engine. Now, it's important to understand some basic Mopar big block foundational knowledge here. There were two different variations of Mopar big blocks, the B engine introduced in 1958 and the RB engine introduced in 1959. And since we're talking about the max wedge engines and the introduction to the 440 today, we'll save the B series low deck big blocks for another episode. But the RB in big block Mopar lingo stands for raised deck B, since its higher deck resulted in an increased stroke from 3.38 inches of stroke on the low deck B engines to a 3.75 inch stroke on the raised deck B engines. The RB engines made their first appearance between the fenders of a Mopar in 1959, just one year after the first low deck B engines were introduced. A little interesting tidbit of knowledge here is that there were actually two different variations of the Big Block 383. One was a low deck and the other was a raised deck. So don't let anyone fool you if they ask you the trick question of how many 383 Big Blocks there were. The first RB Big Block was the 6.8 liter 413 introduced in 1959. 
but it wasn't until 1962 that the maximum performance wedge, more commonly known as the Max Wedge cars, came into the picture. But even before 1962, Mopars were getting more and more powerful. In 1960 and 61, Chrysler introduced an aluminum cross-ram intake that was really a wild and innovative performance part for the time, engineered by none other than the Ram Chargers. I'm sure you guys remember them from the previous episode of High Performance Heritage. The cross-ram intake was actually known as Ram Induction and had 30-inch runners that crossed over the top of the engine with two four-barrel carburetors, each feeding a bank of cylinders. These things looked absolutely wild. If you've never seen them, you definitely need to look them up. Those early ram inductions were insane it looked nuts but these engines were monumental for chrysler in not just drag racing but stock car racing too there was a short ram induction system designed to be simpler and that short ram induction would actually find its way onto the max wedge engines from 1962 through 1964 as well as on the 426 hemis in 64 and 65 and 67 and 68 so When you look at the two engines, the earlier Ram induction systems were just, they were insane looking. They had these giant intake runners. And later, when you look at the Max Wedge engines and the Superstock Hemis, you can see that everything was a little bit more compact and not as wild looking. Although it did still look a little crazy just seeing how the cross Rams were set up, you know, with the carburetors sitting on top of this induction system on opposite ends of one another. It just looked crazy. But with Superstock drag racing titles becoming more important to manufacturers in the early 1960s, these automakers, you know, particularly the big three, started producing high-performance streetcars that could produce respectable times and speeds in quarter-mile drag racing. 1962 would be the year that the Max Wedge would actually take the drag racing world by storm. It was in the year 1962 that Chrysler introduced its new lineup of lightweight mid-sized cars that we now know as the B-Body platform. And B-Bodies were the ideal platform for Chrysler's latest maximum performance wedge engines. For the first year, the 413 was the only max wedge available, known respectively as the Ram Charger 413 in the Dodge and the Superstock 413 in the Plymouths. Depending on compression ratio, you either had 410 horsepower with an 11 to 1 compression ratio or 420 horsepower with a whopping 13.5 to 1 compression ratio. That's insane. 1963 would see the introduction of the larger bore 426 Max Wedge, also known as the Stage 2 Max Wedge. The 426 was available with the same compression ratios as the 413, but produced an extra 5 horsepower for each compression ratio, bumping horsepower up to 415 and 425. Sadly, 1964 would mark the end of the Max Wedge being the big dog, but... The good news is the 426 Race Hemi would be introduced in that same year. The last 426 Max Wedge, known as the Stage 3, and although it had improvements made to both its camshaft and cylinder head, it produced the same horsepower numbers as the Stage 2. It also had the higher compression lowered to 12.5 to 1 from 13.5 to 1 in the year prior. But the Ram Charger 413 and 426 and the Superstock 413 and 426 are legends in the history of Mopar and helped Mopars dominate the drag strips at the time. 
And, you know, to be honest, I would be comfortable in saying that they actually paved the way for the rebirth of the Hemi. And without their success, who knows if we actually would have ever even gotten the elephant that we know as the 426 Hemi today. Who knows if it would have ever even existed. But there are a number of resources out there on max wedge cars and engines. And, you know, I purposely focused on, you know, the foundational knowledge of only the engines because I want to actually give the cars their own episode because there's a lot to go over as far as the cars go. And I think that the cars themselves deserve their own episode because they were so cool and a little bit ahead of their time, you know, giant hood scoops, you know, lightweight body panels. But I mean, we could talk for another probably hour about that stuff, but I think it would make a good episode of high performance heritage. So look forward to an episode on the max wedge cars and not just the engines like we're talking about here today. Before we go, I want to talk briefly about the 440 and give a little bit of its history. The 440 was a 7.2 liter behemoth and was a raised deck RB engine introduced in 1966. It would last until 1978. It was the largest displacement V8 offered by Chrysler and is amongst Mopar engine royalty. Everybody loves a 440. The 440 was found in everything from cars and trucks all the way to RVs. You could get a really tame 440 with low power killing compression in the mid to late 70s right before it died off, but most notably and popular for obvious reasons were the high performance 440s of the muscle car era, like the 440 Magnum and the TNT 440 and the Super Commando. But my personal favorite was the highest performance 440 of all time, and that was the 446 pack and six barrel that had the famous triple Holly two barrel carburetors that sat on top of the Edelbrock aluminum three by two intake manifold. So that's just a little taste of Mopar 440 history. It's funny when you look into the history of the 440 because it started strong and, you know, reached its peak in the muscle car era, you know, with the 446 pack and six barrel. But as the years progressed, you know, towards the middle and late 70s, you know, the compression ratio plummeted and so did the power. So the cool thing is, is you can still find these 440s for really cheap in the big body Mopars and RVs and old trucks. What's cool about the 440 is that there were so many made, there's still many out there that you can build. And they don't have to be the high performance 440s. You can go get a low compression 440 and rebuild it and, you know, stroke it out and make it something really crazy, make it a monster. But without a doubt in my mind, the 440 stands right up there with the 426 Hemi as one of the most popular Mopar engines of all time. Long live the 440 and the Max Wedge Big Blocks. Thanks for joining me here today on this installment of High Performance Heritage. I hope you learned a little something, and I can't wait to talk with you all again. Before we shut this baby down, I want to remind you to go visit my friends over at HemiPages.com, DIYHemi.com, and AutoMetalDirect.com. That's it, my friends. Another episode of Talking Mopars is in the books. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to this show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. And don't forget that you can send me your stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and everything else on your Mopar-addicted mind to Chris at TalkingMopars.com. Or leave me a voice message on my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR to hear yourself on the show. And friends, I have to remind you that we now have merch in the Talking Mopars merch shop. So if you're a fan of the show, you can go there and purchase 
cool things like t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, mugs, and more. So if you want to help support this show and get some cool stuff at the same time, jump on over to TalkingMopars.com and there you will find the store. That's it, my friends. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars High Performance Heritage. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.